we dove into the story, it became really apparent that there's no operating platform. There's no experience management here. And it's totally beyond restructuring. Hey, folks, I'm Zach Seward. I'm a managing editor here at Coindesk. We're going to be talking Quadriga today, which is always fun. This is sort of a test run for what we're doing later next month, actually, with Consensus Distributed, which is our first virtual version of the big big tent crypto event that we hold every year. Mags will be joining us in May, which is fantastic. We're very much looking forward to it, but we want to introduce our attendees to our speakers, and this is how we're doing it. I'm joined by the fantastic Nick Day, who's been owning this story from day one. Before we get into the questions about where things stand with Quadriga CX and recovering funds that were lost and that shutdown, I want to throw it to Nick to just do like the, the minute-long history of this epic saga and where things stand now. So I'm going to toss to Nick, and he's going to knock that out for us. Hey, guys. Thanks for joining. Yeah, Quadriga's been a crazy story for a while. For those of you who aren't familiar or who are only kind of familiar, Quadriga's founder and CEO, Gerald Cotton, he was announced to have died back in December 2018. The actual announcement came mid-January 2019, and at the end of the month, the exchange filed for relief because apparently Cotton was the only one to have access to its crypto wallet and the only one who could you know, run its operations, and therefore some $200 million in crypto and cash were inaccessible. Ernst & Young took over as the court-appointed processor to try and recover the funds. It has so far not been able to recover much beyond a couple million dollars through working with the fiat processors. doesn't look like they're trying to get the crypto back at this point. So it's unclear just how much creditors of the exchange will be able to access. This process has been ongoing. The exchange is formally bankrupt now. It's not coming back. And we're still just waiting to see, A, whether uh, Mr. Cotton has left any way for funds to be recovered, B, whether his body will be exhumed by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, as there's some concerns as to, you know, whether he's actually passed, see how much funds are actually available, and also, you know, how many users are available, because the numbers changed quite a lot since January 2019. Mags, with that as the preface, you're working on behalf of affected users. Thank you for joining us and let us know how you fit into this picture. Sure. A quick little intro. So before I went down the crypto rabbit hole, I spent 10 years in government developing multi-million dollar public sector initiatives to really help businesses, startups scale up, and really how do we disseminate technologies throughout the economy. And then over the last two years, uh, I've helped kind of build startups in the areas of DeFi and blockchain, and I also consult on digital assets with MetaMesh. So recently, for example, I worked with 3IQ to launch North America's first regulated Toronto Stock Exchange uh, listed fund, which is really a huge win for retail consumers, especially looking at something like Rodrigo that happened. You know, I've been kind of active in building the Canadian crypto ecosystem, mobilizing our industry to help respond to regulators, especially because, you know, being affected by Quadriga's downfall, you know, we want to see both kind of like this negative perception of our industry as you know, scam artists and money launderers go down and, and things like Quadriga really don't help. You know, our businesses, they're having trouble accessing even COVID relief funds because they're associated with crypto and there's still that money laundering perception. So lastly, I advise the nonprofit Blockchain for Climate Foundation, and we're working with the UN and other global partners to really put global carbon accounts on a proof of authority blockchain. 
So in terms of your question to how I became involved, first of all, I lost money. <laughs> I was just like, you know, the other 100,000 affected users. And when that exchange went down, understandably, everybody sought out lawyers because there were some people that lost, you know, their whole life savings. They lost several million, um, hundreds of thousands, and there were smaller creditors too. And, and regardless of what, it, it sucks to lose your crypto because, you know, you're trying to be part of the future. Maybe you see it as a way to opt out of the fiat system, but then it's gone. And, and, and it's really tough when that happens, regardless. And I know, you know, many exchanges went down in the past. It still sucks when it happens to you. Several law firms kind of became involved at that point, and they put forward kind of different concerns, like user privacy protection. There's, there was concerns about the cost of litigation with so many firms involved. The real need for an investigation of what the heck happened, like $200 million was gone. And so given, you know, there were a large number of victims and the fact that we're breaking new legal ground in Canada and potentially, you know, this could be looked at from other jurisdictions of how to deal with these kinds of proceedings. One legal firm was selected to represent all creditors, and that's Miller Thompson. And then there was a committee of affected users brought in. And so this committee plays an important role because we represent the interests of all affected users. We advise the actions of Miller Thompson, and, and we're also there to advocate or everyone impacted in a more efficient way than, you know, every single user dealing with Noah Thompson or EY. And so in terms of, you know, how we came to be there, we were appointed uh, members. Now, you can only be appointed if you lost money. And that appointment process was really no different than a board appointment. You know, you needed to apply, undergo a rigorous interview process. But the important part was that EY and MT tried to pick a diverse group of creditors that could better represent the broad victims in, in a more fair way. So for example, you know, some were representative more of small creditors, others of whales, and kind of put these interests in front of a judge because there, there will be kind of different pushes and pulls depending on where you sit sort of along the scale. For example, if you didn't lose any money and you were just on the platform, maybe privacy is a big concern to you. But if you lost money, obviously you want to get as much of it back and quickly, right? So that's kind of the one hat that I wear. <laughs> as a committee member that was appointed. And then I know sometimes it's, it's boring, the legal stuff. <laughs> but um, when the exchange went under and Jerry died, Perduka filed for insolvency protection. Part of it was to like, let's save off the lawsuits and figure out what happened, right? EY was appointed to oversee its restructuring. But as it kind of like we dove into the story, it became really apparent that there's no operating platform. There's no experience management here. And it's totally beyond restructuring. So let's shift the process into bankruptcy. You know, this had a benefit of lowering through the legal costs. And it really gave EY greater powers to investigate the potential recovery of assets. And so under that Bankruptcy Act, inspectors are appointed to also represent creditors, but more so supervise certain aspects of the trustees administration and direct actions, for example, provide direction around asset liquidation. We don't want to do a fire sale, for example. So five of those seven committee members wear the second hat, but we work together. So there's two additional ones that don't based on kind of legislation, but we're all, still all there. And, and we talk to kind of make sure that the best interests are represented in a way that's fair. So let me back up a second. And you can tell me to like pound sand on this one. But personally speaking, do you represent oh, the whale yeah. camp or like the plebe camp? I'm a plebe. I lost $2,000 worth. It's not a lot, but honestly, it sucked. It's like, you know, you're trying to stack stats and you're like, crap, I lost a little bit of Bitcoin. And that sucks. 
right? <laughs> yeah. It sucks to be yeah. the meme too when you're like, not your keys, not your coins like that. When you're like, you just get dumped I better. You know, the worst part was like two or three weeks before it was the, um, it's that event that happens annually where it's like, control your keys, take all your crypt off the exchange. And you're like, oh, I'm really busy. I can't remember what I was doing. I'm like, I don't have time. I know I should do this. But then it's like, oh my God, I was so dumb. <laughs> right? Yeah. This is like a story that captivated broader interest than just the crypto sector. This became a Vanity Fair profile, like the splashy the excesses of, <laughs> of Mr. Cotton were sort of laid bare. Talk to me about some of just like the more colorful aspects of this case, if you could. I mean, we're talking about lavish purchases on everything from over a dozen properties. I think there was a personal jet involved. I believe there are multiple boats. Lend some color to what we're talking about here when we're talking about the assets that are in the process of being recovered and returned mm-hmm. to affected users. What are some of the assets that are currently like under discussion? So I think the more that EY dug into the story, it really started to unravel like what was really happening behind the scenes. And honestly, <laughs> it's wild. It would like be on Netflix, kind of similar to the Tiger King piece where you're like, oh, okay, he died, is what you're initially thinking. And then like, oh, he lost access to private keys. And then you're like, whoa, 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 back up. He took user funds, sent it to other exchanges, was margin trading, experienced huge losses. And then we also find out that money was funneled from Quadriga and it was used to purchase homes, 10 to 12 properties that were purchased. There was a plane, there was a boat, a few cars, and I mean, other things like, you know, he went on lavish trips, he bought jewelry for his fiance, then wife. And as you're kind of going through the story, you're like, there's some users that lost a lot. And they're like, what? He betrayed our trust and he was living this high life. And now there's all these assets and then that asset was bequeathed to the estate. And I think people really took to the fact that like there were a pair of chihuahuas that had a hundred thousand that was put into the estate to kind of take care of them. What? What's going on here? You know, about 200 million Canadian, now I speak in Canadian money, maple syrup dollars, 200 million dollars was lost and only about 40 million was recovered. So about 30 million in cash. We got lucky there because the banks actually, there was a whole scuffle with CIBC around kind of who does this money belong to? So it was kind of locked up in a legal court case. So I think that actually helped us. There was that money and then there was a bit more recovered. And then there was about 10 to 12 million in the estate. It kind of really depends on how much uh, we get back when we finish liquidating those assets. So it's 40 million out of 200 15-ish, it's not a lot. And so it it really begs the question, like, what really happened there? And how can we follow the trail and kind of unravel that? Does that answer your question? It definitely answers the question of just the extent to which this alleged scheme occurred. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. It's like in 2017, you know, at the peak of kind of Bitcoin was high, Quadruga processed nearly $2 billion in trades. That's what it says. But we also find out that there was a lot of trading, you know, under false accounts, fake accounts that was generated. So some degree, you know, was that really real volume? Because they were trading against users. And in in other respects, too, it was Canada's largest exchange. It had run five years before it went down. And people love generally Canadians. We have a good reputation. So when they see that, oh, Quadriga, you know, Canadian company based out of Vancouver, 
And, oh, look at that. They have a money service. You know, they're registered with FinTrack, the regulator, as a money service business. Like that really makes you feel better about putting your money there to the point where like you were kind of recommending to other users, like which exchange do I use? Oh, you can try out Quadriga. You know, you can get your money on pretty quickly. They're an MSP, sorry, money service business. You can verify your identity. You can submit funds through Canada Post. Like it added credibility, which was really unfortunate because I think it kind of exacerbated those losses. Yeah, I mean, we're getting some good questions from the chat. So first of all, thanks for the folks tuning in on Zoom, uh, Periscope, and YouTube. Thanks for some of these questions. Here's a fun one, actually, from a colleague of mine. Would you rather be a Mt. Gox creditor or a Quadriga creditor? You know, it's kind of funny because I think I'd rather in some ways be a Mt. Gox creditor, even though it's taking like six years still and counting. And the reason is they have a huge stash of Bitcoin. And it's looking like the users are pushing to actually distribute the Bitcoin back to the users. Unlike kind of this scenario where we have more cash, obviously way more was lost percentage-wise on Mt. Gox. But if you kind of look at the fiat value of what you lost then, you're still ahead. Like if you had Bitcoin on the exchange, you're at least double. It's hard to say because like, you know, prices change, but you're at least double. And if you get back your Bitcoin, get back your Bitcoin here, you're unfortunately a situation where you have the majority of the funds that were recovered is fiat. Does that remain a major sticking point? Being returned your crypto assets in fiat that may have depreciated? Or I mean, you lose the appreciation of your crypto assets, of course, but like, yeah. does that continue to be a sticking point for affected users? I think 100%. I know there's a lot of users. So, so let's say, you know, I had Bitcoin and another user had Ethereum. But, you know, everyone's like, well, I don't care about cash. I want that exact Bitcoin. Everybody lost money, right? Whether you had cash or crypto. And to be fair, you know, the way that it's distributed, it has to be kind of an equal percentage wise. The part where it gets tricky is depending on kind of what the fiat value versus the Bitcoin value versus Ethereum value, right? Sometimes depending where the prices are at, you know, you might be more beneficial depending on more, where you kind of value that. And that's where I think the legal precedent comes in sort of around how maybe this wasn't dealt with a lot in courts or on the crypto side, but you kind of have to look at past precedents of when do you value this? Is it when the exchange went down or when it went into bankruptcy? And that's kind of, I think, historically how it's been dealt with, for example, around stocks. But it's a tough call because either way, like somebody loses a little bit more. And the part where, you know, we ended up with, yeah, but Bitcoin went up significantly higher. Ethereum's gone down quite a bit, but, you know, Bitcoin really is still above the value of, of when the exchange went down. And you know, all the time you're like, man, if I had my Bitcoin, I'd be up but you're not. And it's like, I want my money faster because I want to get in before the happening, for example. It's, it's rough. Obviously, a number of federal agencies around the world are looking into this, including the FBI and the RCMP. Mm-hmm. Do you know what the latest is and what progress they've made or why they're not making a lot of progress? The fun part about NDAs is that I can't talk about a lot of things, but the actual kind of more ironic part about the NDAs is I'm actually not in the know. When it comes to law enforcement activities, the committee and, and inspectors are actually removed for that. You know, those things are redacted. And I think the rationale is if there's certain law enforcement activities happening, you know, a leak could harm the investigation. So I can understand that. But it's frustrating too. So unfortunately, I don't know. Just stepping back a little bit, I think it's amazing how this community really came together 
when Quadriga happened. You know, we had exchanges putting up, Kraken, I think, put up 100,000 on information. Please send information if you have any. There were a lot of people that actually started tracking the blockchain. There's a gentleman who, who started Breadcrumbs. It's an app where you can actually track Ethereum on the internet. So it's sort of similar to like crypto tracing companies, but for regular people. And people are kind of crowdsourcing, you know, let's follow the money where it went. And there's a user, he goes by QXT, INT, I believe. And he really dug deep into things, uh, you know, both Jerry's past and provided information to the FBI. And a lot of that is in that Vanity Fair article. Jerry had a history since 15 of running Ponzi schemes. And the other co-founder of Quadriga has a criminal past. He ran Ponzi schemes. He was responsible for washing funds. You know, he was arrested in the U.S. And so kind of putting these things together, once they became public knowledge through good investigative work and people really coming together and find out these things, it really helped us too. Because if something's under NDA, even Miller Thompson or EY know it, it can't be talked about. But once that kind of information was brought into a light, it really helped us because we could do things like publicly appeal to the RCMP, uh, Canadian police, and say, hey, there's something funny that happened here. Can we dig up the body? Maybe that'll help kind of figure out, like, do we need to keep looking down certain avenues? It does really change kind of the conversation once things become public. It's cheaper, too, for the RCMP. Like, I know a lot of people after things like that Vanity Fair article, or even the article that really betrays sort of the path of when Derry went to India and then how he died and the crazy story there where like he died, he was put in the hospital, but then his body was brought back to the hotel and then from the hotel back to the hospital, which rejected it. They're like, whoa, whoa, this isn't how we do things. Like we can't just process this body that was brought back. So then it got sent to, I believe, a, a university for embalming. It's just weird stuff there kind of that was happening too. And so, you know, a lot of people are like, dig the body up. Is he dead? We, we want to know, right? If we can appeal to the RCMP, we don't have to then go through an expensive court process to kind of argue why we need to dig up the body. And if there's a resistance, you know, fight to dig up the body and then prove if it's Jerry or not. So two quick follow-ups there. On the exhumation front, I know that Miller Thompson sent a letter to, I believe, the minister in charge of the RCMP. I'm not sure if there's been any kind of word back or if anyone's heard anything. Again, I'm not privy to a lot of these law enforcement agencies. There, there isn't anything active on that front. I am a little bit frustrated. If you kind of look at traditional financial markets, if a financial crime of 200 million that affects, you know, 100,000 Canadians happens, politicians kind of, you know, jump all over themselves to be like, we got to stop this. Things can't happen again. Like, this is such bad news. You know, old ladies lost their pensions. Like, we, we have to put a stop to this. I think because crypto had this bad news stories, you know, bad press, governments tend to kind of favor more like blockchain, amazing, you know, IBM, Hyperledger. And, you know, there's a lot of questions that still get raised around, you know, is crypto used by money launderers? And, you know, I think a lot of companies are doing great work to show that we're not. MIT did a study and it showed that very small percentages of crypto are, are used in money laundering. But that kind of perception continues. So I think it makes it very hard politically to kind of come in and support 
this industry when the general public might not support that as well. But that's the nature of those kind of positions. So I think it's a real shame because I think there's a lot of companies here in the space, especially in Canada, doing amazing work to help bank the unbanked, you know, provide alternative ways to access banking. Like, but that's not an issue just in the developing world. Like in the US, something like 25% of people are unbanked or underbanked. So, you know, we're building these kind of new rails. We have crypto companies that are not able to get access to banking. Um, you know, they're getting their loans turned down. As an industry, we're moving further. And I think Quadriga has helped in that, you know, it really came into play where you know, our industries come together and says, hey, you know what, we have to do better. Let's do things like proof of reserves to show transparency. You know, we have non-custodial exchanges where you own your own keys. So, you know, I think we're, we're really trying to work within a regulated environment. We have, you know, a new FinTech committee launching in Canada to try to help work with regulators to put in regulations that make sense, but they'll still make, you know, this industry competitive in Canada. I used to work on cap and trade for a long time. And it's, it's the kind of same scenario where if you don't have regulatory certainty, you don't have the incentive to do business in Canada because you're worried, are they going to shut me down? Can I still get banking? And, you know, a lot of people are kind of working on these issues like Avanti launching in, in the U.S. But, you know, there's still these uncertainties. So maybe it makes sense to go uh, to move to another jurisdiction that's more favorable. So I think it's important that we continue to work and try to do better. And, and Quadria kind of helped accelerate that. Have you guys been making any headway or finding any advocates in the political realm in Canada that have taken up some of these questions? Or is that just so far off the radar at this point that you're not even trying? Like I said, I think a lot of politicians tend to be more towards like, let's support the blockchain ecosystem, DeFi, maybe a little bit. It, it is really tricky. Like I said, it's not great PR. Even aside from that, I think there's still a lot of education that needs to happen about what you know, digital currencies are. I think it's actually progressed significantly ever since Libra was proposed last year. I mean, look at the kind of conversations that happen after Libra, the kind of discussions around central bank digital currencies. Now they're looking or they contemplated launching a digital dollar to help with COVID relief. Like, I feel like we've really progressed in this short time, but there's still, you know, even looking at, you know, your Senate questions, there's still a lot of either misunderstandings or a lot of work that needs to, to happen to kind of understand that, you know, there's, there's really good things that we're trying to do and build that can solve existing problems or make things more efficient. I know, I know it's not like a perfect solution, but I think people are really excited to try to build that future that's a little bit better, that's a little more inclusive financially. Maybe that can deliver uh, funds a little quicker to people. I want to get a few sort of brass tacks questions on the, on the record here okay. from some, uh, some attendees. A great one from a guy named Jeff Jeffries. Do creditors need to worry about their identities being revealed? as it relates to the QCX case? Yeah, so, so that's an interesting one. So just to, to kind of provide a little bit of context. So Canada Revenue Agency, like the IRS, is auditing Quadriga, and it served EY a production demand requiring that EY, as the trustee, provide all company data. Now, that's not just financials on Quadriga, but it also wanted to have all user data. So things like, user info like their name, their wallet addresses, address mapping, their fiat and crypto transactions on the platform, trades, deposit, withdrawals, balances. They want access to all of that. And it was really under, you know, we want to do an audit. Um, and, and the reason that is, is because Quadriga never filed taxes. So we could have tax liabilities. 
And and that kind of is, is a separate issue around if there is a tax liability, then the CRA pursues it. It could be a claim against the company. And then they're like every other creditor. The kind of crazy stuff is that, you know, EY's reports, EY, you know, big four firm, they do a lot of auditing and tax stuff. It kind of really shows that it's near impossible to calculate the tax owed by Quadriga. Like there's no books, there's no records, there's no tax filings. And, you know, investigations found that there was massive fraud and fake users and fake trading. So I guess it makes sense that they would want to have as much data as possible. I have a concern about that. Protecting user privacy was really at the heart of the case of these proceedings. You know, it's cited in numerous legal documents uh, at the start of it in various affidavits. And it's actually one of the top things that, you know, MT was appointed by the judge, uh, Miller Thompson, to think about. This broad request, some people might view it as a fishing expedition. Typically, companies have fought to protect user privacy, whether it's Apple and encryption or, you know, even Kraken fighting the New York's AG request for information. But we don't have a company here that's advocating for users. My other concern was like, the CRA has a history of failing to protect user privacy. There's been hacks, there's been data breaches and, and mistakes, right? The most recent breach in the US, the, the Small Business Association's online application portal for COVID relief. Naturally, there are concerns about privacy protection. Uh, you know, there's obviously initial measures taken, but I think it's the right kind of concern to have. I can't speak to how, how well they protect their data, but I did, did you think that it's a concern to have whether this is managed right? Yeah, I think that makes sense. I'm not okay. going to follow up with that, but I know Nick reported on that recently about EY turning over some potentially sensitive information. I thought that was sort of the latest twist and turn. There's really no way to stop the CRA from auditing Quadriga. CRA has a right to. What would be wrong, though, is if their request was really just a vehicle for getting this database of taxpayers to target for crypto audits, right? Now they could still do that, but they would need a federal court order, and one hasn't been requested. And just sort of, you know, to assuage fears, you know, Miller Thompson has confirmed that the purpose of that request was really for the audit of Quadriga and that no user or group of users is under investigation, but it's just something, you know, I don't love it. <laughs> just, yeah, I, you know, I think people just want to make sure that their data is protected, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it makes sense. The crypto space tends to be a little more on the, you know, cautious side and the privacy protection side, I think, than the general populace, right? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Honestly, like in terms of education as well, I think there's an interesting question about having experienced this loss of funds firsthand. Do you have a particular perspective on whether or not people will ever stop entrusting their funds to exchanges as a central point of failure in the system? Or like, do you think that that degree of centrality will always be necessary and there needs to be some sort of additional protective measures? I think what was kind of crazy, um, Binance did a study within the last year, some crazy percentage, like 90%. uh, And some of these are big users, like maybe hedge funds. They keep their funds on exchange, like multi-million dollars. So even though things like Gox, uh, the New Zealand exchange, Quadriga, Einstein exchange, two exchanges went down in Canada last year and lost funds. So really bad news story for Canada. Despite all these things happening, people still put money on exchanges and leave them on exchanges. So I don't think it's going to change the nature of things. I think what we can do is make sure there's proper but competitive regulatory frameworks in place, you know, working really with the industry on things that make sense because it is a different industry and it maybe doesn't really fit in how traditionally custody is done. So I think definitely there's measures that companies can do, 
But I think it really comes down to you yourself personally. Some people prefer to hold their own keys and they might use exchanges that are non-custodial and that's definitely an option. Looking more mainstream, there's always going to be users that, you know, I don't trust myself. I'm worried about like losing my private key. I'm worried about a hack on my computer. And maybe I really trust, you know, this exchange a little bit more. Maybe it's a couple hundred dollars and and I feel like I can keep it there, distribute it enough, um, you know, maybe distribute it against a few exchanges. I think it's impossible to completely keep money off exchanges if you want to have kind of the liquidity that you're looking for right now. And if you're trading, if you're actively trading, you know, some people set limit orders, you're going to put money on an exchange. If you want on an off ramps, if you want to buy crypto or sell crypto, unless you're using a custodial exchange in Canada, for example, gold Bitcoin is a good example of that. But, you know, for example, you want to buy Ethereum, they don't deal with anything but Bitcoin, you're going to have to use an exchange. So really what we need to do is we need to make sure that those consumer protection measures are in place, that there's transparency for example, proof of reserves, and go from there. Bouncing off of that, last year, the investment industry regulatory organization published a proposed framework a couple months after Quadriga collapsed Mm -hmm. on how crypto exchanges and other platforms could better secure data, maintain controls. Do you think that those guidelines address the risks that existed in Canada prior to Quadriga's collapse? And do you think that their implementation will help? I think um, so that was informed by Quadriga when you're kind of reading between the lines and you're like, ah, okay, this is what Quadriga is doing. So you're kind of mitigating against that. I do think it actually pushed and accelerated that regulatory conversation in Canada because it made regulators look bad. If you don't have a regulatory framework, Quadriga happened. What do we do from now? And for example, when Einstein Exchange collapsed a few months later, British Columbia Securities Commission was much quicker on top of that. They heard a lot of complaints about users and they closed it down and potentially prevented more losses. So I think we're starting to see better action. I know our industry has kind of been talking back and forth with regulators and providing feedback on that. I think some people think it's not perfect yet. They're trying to work within the existing regulatory framework and there's things that are proposed. Um, A more recent kind of guidance came out two months ago where they're treating any kind of digital asset, if it's held by a custodian, it's a security. Even if it's Bitcoin, you know, unless you do immediate delivery, it's a security. So kind of, I think a lot of people maybe, or some people weren't expecting things like that. And it changes the nature of the conversation. I think because I come from a public policy background, you know, working in government, kind of both economic development, and, and I understand kind of, you know, how regulatory frameworks work. A lot of times what I see is that there's all these different policy issues and right now we're really working in this, you know, the, with the regulators and the securities uh, commission. But I think there's other parts that come into play, like privacy, like consumer protection, and things like even just, you know, supporting our businesses, you know, working with them to kind of build this new, better system. And so I think you need to bring those policy discussions to a higher level where you integrate all these things. And so, you know, the securities regulators, how they work is they work within the existing regulatory framework. And the regulatory framework is a securities one. So they try to slot things like consumer protection and market integrity under those rules and play within those rules. But I think what I've seen in jurisdictions like Bermuda, where they can move a little bit quicker, and, and but other countries are doing that too. You know, they're coming out federally, you know, with rules around get companies access to banking. 
to mandate certain things that allow them to. And that can really help grow the industry or things around custody, you know, specific rules around custody for crypto. I think those types of regs are really beneficial. You're not delayed by things like working across multiple jurisdictions to come up with a fairly consistent plan because there's even jurisdictional arbitrage that happens within Canada. You know, people feel that maybe Alberta is being a little more supportive of the blockchain industry. One of the banks, Crown Corporation of Government, was providing banking services to crypto companies for a while there. So a lot of companies kind of moved to a more supportive space, even in Canada. So I think if certain regulators are willing to work a little bit more with industry to, to come up with something that makes sense, I think you know, it makes sense for those companies to migrate there and work with them and politicians, as opposed to try to fit into the existing framework. A topic for another day. What is up with oh, the, great plains, the Great Plains states and the Great Plains provinces? We got Alberta, we got Wyoming. But hey, I have a question, nice one from the audience. And this is something that I've been encouraging, full disclosure, I've been encouraging Nick to take up this project of getting the screenplay done for this one, like ASAP. So anyway, the question from Jeff Jeffries is, will the bankruptcy estate benefit from any future movie or book rights? For example, if a project were to emerge, like is that, <laughs> is that a realistic possibility that we could see going forward? I don't think there's been any kind of conversations around that. I mean, I could float it, but honestly, I think what people will say, like, why is EY and Miller Thompson spending victims' funds to negotiate a deal that might or might not lead to rights? Like, I think what we have to kind of step back and see it's creditor funds. This isn't a company that lost money that was, you know, investors that were, you know, invested. It's really funds that were held on behalf or in trust of users. And so we have to be really conscious that any kind of decision we make, it's victims' money that we're depleting. So we have to make decisions that benefit, right? So we can't be frivolous. Nick, I know you had a question. I'll let you toss that in. I wanted to just take some time, talk about the NDAs from Miller Thompson. So I know you can't speak to too much around that, but I'm curious just broadly, you know, if you can speak to what areas they cover or what the restrictions look like. The long and short of it, it really says anything that's not public knowledge can't be revealed. And so, you know, I'm not allowed to disclose confidential information that maybe Miller Thompson or EY brings. And if anyone does on the committee, um, you know, they, they may be removed from the role. And like I said before, you know, it, it makes sense if there's things like, you know, law enforcement activities that could leak and harm the investigation. It's not public. I can't talk about it. I'm sorry. Right. And I know people are so frustrated about that. Right. So I remember recently, Miller Thompson and EY filed a couple costs for responding to law enforcement activities. And earlier you said that, you know, you're not privy to what some of those costs were. So my question is basically, is EY and Miller Thompson essentially asking you to sign off on costs without knowing the full extent to what they are? Yeah. Personally, I've taken the stance that if I don't have transparency into those specific ones, I cannot, you know, approve them. And I defer to the judge who will see all the details on it. I do personally find it a little bit frustrating that we don't have the insight. As an inspector, you're supposed to, you know, inspect the activities of the trustee. But those costs will all be reviewed by the judge and to see if they're reasonable. I can understand where a lot of people's frustration comes from, but I think one, one thing that we have to keep in mind is that EY was appointed by the judge. It wasn't picked by us or by users. It was 
the company, when it was going into in, initially, it was um, an insolvency, picked DY, put them forward, and then they were appointed to do a job. And they're doing that job, you know, administration. And, and I'm not going to stand up for them. They're professionals, but they're doing what they're doing. So I think when it comes to, you know, things like costs, certainly, you know, I have certain frustrations. For example, one thing I've learned that's been really frustrating about our insolvency system is that it hasn't really adopted technology as fast as other industries. And, and I think it's particularly frustrating working in the crypto space. We're seeing all these rapid advancements around digital assets and DeFi space. So this insolvency system has kind of parallels to the broader financial system that we're trying to disrupt. But it was designed at this time where, you know, technology wasn't there. And now creditors are suffering kind of those additional costs because it hasn't caught up. So, for example, when they're administering a bankruptcy, you know, we're not seeing tech deployed to make things efficient. It's just manual labor being used when we know that, you know, tech could probably yield better efficiencies. But it's the nature of how that industry works. And it's kind of working within the legacy industry as well. So it's another area, right, for destruction. And, you know, in cases like this, it really hits home how much work we have to do around you know, whether it's it's the financial system and payments or just even things like, you know, dealing with insolvencies. Hey, Mags, like speaking of timelines and all that stuff, what are the next big steps? Give us a little signpost on the journey of Quadriga and where we're going forward. Sure. So there's a few things that still need to happen before a distribution happens. First, the trustee needs to file a tax return. And that's just the nature of the bankruptcy process. It has to file a tax return. Because the CRA has jumped in thrown its hat into the ring, they now need to finish their audit of Quadriga. But then also, you know, people have submitted claims and the trustee needs to finish evaluating all these claims. And that really has been a time intensive process, especially, you know, because some victims, for example, the balances were on the platform deferred on those accounts. So there's kind of like additional things that need to be done there. But there are thousands of claims and that takes a while to process through and I mean, they are nearing the end of it, but it's just like I was kind of saying before, the tech hasn't caught up. It was unfortunately a manually intensive process. So those things, you know, tax return, CRA, finish evaluating claims, those things need to happen before it comes through. So I guess I was just wondering if there was like a month or a date or something that would, you <laughs> I know, know, I know, us, I know it's a nice put on the calendar for a big, crazy day. Yeah, yeah, no, I know it's not the answer people want. Um, so I hope kind of like, you know, laying out ex- kind of helps explain why it's hard to pin an exact date. Um, yeah. Because you know, these things need to happen. And I don't know how long, you know, the CRA needs to kind of, you know, like, e- even if, you know, the trustee needs to file a return, they need to kind of align with that. And then after this, by the way, after the trustee files a tax return, according to the laws, you have to wait three months before a distribution can happen. And so assuming everything goes tickety-boo, you know, we get all these things done. Hopefully there's nothing like crazy that comes along or weird or complication. For example, if let's say we disallow certain claims for whatever reason or another, maybe there's legal issues that come up. And so, you know, long and short of it, I don't expect anytime soon. What we are trying to do is make sure it doesn't take an unreasonably long period of time. You know, on our end, we're trying to avoid delays. For example, in the last month, you know, we voted as a committee not to fight the production demand of all user data and to facilitate the audit process to happen. And that was because it could have delayed things further, right? So we're kind of putting the pieces into place and those third parties need to do their job to get it done. It's just, 
look at Mount Gox. I don't think we're in the Mount Gox situation. It's been six years, but like, you know, things come up. And so hopefully, you know, we're kind of nearing the end of it. And there's ways to kind of mitigate around that, right? Like you could, what you can do is you can set money aside and do an initial distribution as kind of like as a contingency. So let's say, you know, we're like, oh, maybe the CRA, if they file a claim that that's still unclear. Um, but if they file a claim, you can always set some money aside as a contingency and depending on what happens, do another distribution. We want to get money out. Users want their money, right? We're cognizant of that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Nick, what are you looking at in this story going forward? I mean, you've been on this one for the long haul. What's a more informed perspective than mine? The big question is just what exactly does EY need left? Is it just already just looking at claims now or is there still more to come from the Quadriga side of it? Do you know? They're working through claims. I think even like at the bills, that's kind of winding down. There's Oh, oh, sorry. The liquidation of assets so is another item that kind of needs to happen. Um, that's nearly complete too. So you know there were homes a boat, a plane. So in order to get to distribution, you should get to cash, not like a house. So that's another thing that needs to happen. Okay, so this is actually coming from uh, one of the users. So I get that there's been you know partly due to the NDAs, there's been a lot of lack of transparency between what's been going on in the background versus what users are actually seeing. One user question has been, you know, if you weren't yourself on the committee, what would you think about the job that the inspectors have been doing? I think it's a little different because I've worked in government for 10 years and it's very similar. Like, you know, you only see the final act of what's publicly announced. You don't see all the work that kind of happens in the background. And because there is a lot of things that we can't talk about, you know, things we review, things we contemplate. I can completely understand why it's frustrating now that I'm out in, in the public sector and seeing like, oh, why are we, you know, why are things moving so slowly? Where are the regulations? But at the same time, you can kind of understand what goes into that. And so, sorry, we can't reveal the, the kind of items under the NDA. I understand it's frustrating seeing costs, professional fees happen. Like I said before, you know, we didn't appoint EY. We didn't appoint Miller Thompson. We have done a lot of work with Miller Thompson to make sure we, we come up with ways to minimize uh, costs. Initially, there were a lot of costs associated with dealing with users, you know, and we kind of said, hey, let's back that off. I know it's important to communicate, but at the same time, like it's costing the estate a lot of money. And so if we scale that back and just focus on legal things as they arise, then, you know, we can help kind of maintain the pot a little bigger. Just look at Mount Gox too. It's not, or, or even, um, was it Cryptopia, the, the New Zealand exchange? Like it's, there isn't a ton of news coming out. It's just the nature of things. But I think it becomes a little more real when you lost money and you're like, crap, the happening's coming. What's going on with, you know, Bitcoin? Oh, I wish I had my Bitcoin or um, I wish I had some funds to buy back in, right? Why aren't I getting distributed? So I think you kind of forget that like our legal system takes a long time. Like the Nortel bankruptcy took years. It's kind of like a class action lawsuit in some ways. There's a lot of people involved you're dealing with thousands of claims, it takes a long time and it's frustrating. Yeah, but it's the nature of kind of the legal system. It's the nature of the bankruptcy process that maybe is a bit out of date technologically. I can understand why they're frustrated. Cool. So we're going to wrap up with that. I'm getting the signal from the producers back at the ranch. Thanks so much for <laughs> being with us, Mags. This is again, like a warm up for our big yeah. May 11th through 15th consensus event. It's free to attend. Uh, there's going to be a lot more great conversations going on in a 24-hour format in mid-May. So please do join us. We're also going to be doing these Coindesk Lives twice a week until then.
Mags, thank you so much for uh, answering the questions and all the work you're doing on behalf of effective users. Appreciate it. Thanks, and thanks for sharing this crazy story and what we've all been through. All right, see you folks.